This is Heat Check. I'm Peyton Gallagher. That's Gabe Schwartz. We're back on a Blaze Radio airwave. That feels good, buddy. I'm coming to you from Phoenix. You're still in Kansas City. You'll be back here over the course of the weekend. But what we do on the show is we talk about college sports. And we were planning the program last night. Thought we had a pretty packed show, as is. And then the Pac-12 announces that the Wicked Witch is dead. Larry Scott will no longer be the commissioner of this conference beyond this year. He's done plenty of damage, but his reign of terror is over. Initial impressions on that. Um, I think that it was it was anyone who says that Larry Scott left the conference in a better place than he received it is lying to your face. Uh, <laughs> it was a colossal failure, his time. Um, and really the only saving grace is that he lucked into taking over early in the decade or at the end of, in, I think it was 2009, he took over and he lucked into having Chip Kelly and Andrew Luck in the conference at the start. And that kept them relevant in football. And as soon as they didn't have um, that little Chip Kelly, Marcus Mariota duo and Andrew Luck and Jim Harbaugh and David Shaw, um, it was over and, and things have gone South since they haven't had a college football playoff team since 2016, only one team, Oregon made it to a final four during his time. Um, and not to diminish Olympic sports and such, but he overvalued Olympic sports and he undervalued the importance of being nationally relevant in men's basketball and football. And at the end of the day, that coupled with the complete lack of an understanding of the elevation that Fox and ESPN could have for the Mm -hmm. big 10 network and the sec network and the ACC network, um, has left the Pac-12 on the outside looking in and also at a pretty large financial loss. Well, absolutely. I mean, you think of the, the tagline, Limo Larry, the operating cost of the league with some lavish expenditures across the board. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on the show, but having the league's headquarters in the most expensive real estate market in the entirety of the conference in San Francisco for no real reason Um, some of the things he chose to do when he was in Las Vegas in terms of his personal accommodations. And you couple that with the fact that the conference was hemorrhaging cash off the television deal that was never made, that he promised to deliver to get Pac-12 Network on Xfinity, on Dish, on the different TV providers that never happened. He priced himself out of that. And to watch the other revenue models flourish across the country with the SEC Network, you already touched on the Big Ten Network, now the ACC network, that model failed so miserably. And I think that is what, honestly, more than any of the things that he did competitively with the league, that failure of the Pac-12 network on at least a, a television perspective is going to be the biggest thing on his CV and post. Yeah, and, and basically what he will be remembered for is the complete – erosion of the Pac-12 brand. I texted you a couple nights ago um, while I was watching, while we were watching, or while I had Duke Pitt on. um, And I said, because my thought was, these are two teams that are decent, average at best. And it feels like, to me, 
it's on a it's on a Super Tuesday matchup for ESPN and such because people understand or at least perception wise think that the ACC is above the Pac-12 when in reality the Pac-12 is what people think the ACC is this year in basketball and yeah, better th- things in the Pac-12 have happened where USC goes 11 and 2 they have a lottery pick in in Mobley and mm-hmm. they're not ranked that would not happen in the ACC uh Colorado's 11 and 3 they're they're doing well in the conference I understand that they lost to to Washington who's two and 11 now last night, but things like that happen in the ACC and people, people, the assumption is the ACC beats up on itself and these teams get ranked and and ranked again, because in the PAC 12, a loss from a good team to an average team makes people think that the good team is average in the ACC, the SEC, big 12 and big 10. When average teams win, people think that that makes them good. And it's the complete opposite. And that's because of the brand of the conference. And there's nothing from the top down that would indicate that people should believe otherwise, because there's nothing postseason wise that has indicated that the Pac-12 is worthy of that. Even though yeah. I think that I think that if the perception changes, the conference would be put in better places to succeed, and then the results would change as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even as simple as the fact that Washington being as bad as they are is not a story that anybody cares about, right? Like this is a team under Mike Hopkins that had a lot of success. He won back-to-back Pac-12 Coach of the Year, kind of set a high bar for Washington. Then last year happens with the big recruits, and they kind of go belly up and aren't as good as they're supposed to be. And then this year, they are as bad as they are. I feel like that would be a national story if it were happening to a Louisville, a program that at least over like the last five years, I'm not talking historically, but over the last five years would probably be in about the same place that UW has been that would be a more national story and nobody cares about it because it's in the PAC 12 and the media exposure has denigrated so much in the time that Larry Scott's been here. I'm going to read you some numbers um, because the PAC 12 has kind of become the butt of the joke in a lot of instances. Now I understand why this isn't necessarily fully applicable to football and basketball, which are the big exposure sports, but I'm going to let you guess in terms of total titles, NCAA titles won. How many Pac-12 schools are at the top of that list before you get to a school from any other conference? Read the, what's the comparison again? So in terms of total NCAA titles ever won by your school, how many numbers do you have to go down the list from the top to find a school that's not in the Pac-12? This is where the Conference of Champions comes from. Oh, I mean, UCLA has a, has a good amount. Stanford has a good amount. Um, ASU has a decent amount of, of baseball and such. I would probably say four spots. So it's three. Okay. Stanford at 123 in 20 different sports. UCLA at 118 in 20 different sports. And Southern Cal, USC at 107. In 17 different sports. Fourth place is Oklahoma State, oddly enough, at 52. But the pride that comes with that in this conference, again, has just diminished so exponentially under Larry Scott. Um, even though Pac 12 teams are still winning Rose Bowls, and even though Pac 12 teams are competing at a high level to some regard, 
I think that's weakened over the last couple of years because it's harder to recruit when you're not playing in those national TV games as much. All that said, there is no way that you can look at his impact on the Pac-12 other than him putting a Pac-12 championship game in football and say that there's really been much anything positive. And the only, the only reason there was a Pac-12 championship game added is because they added Utah and Colorado, made it a 12 yeah. team conference, and they needed to because not everybody was playing everybody on a consistent basis. The problem is other leagues value their conference championships more, and there's too many instances of Larry Scott and the powers that be in San Francisco, which we can talk about and we don't need to go too far into, but just how ludicrous it is that the Pac-12 offices are costing the conference 10 times more than the SEC pays for their offices in wherever it's located. I think Hoover, Alabama. Yeah. In Hoover, Alabama. That's the, that's the difference Um, because Larry, Larry wanted to be closer to, to big tech in San Francisco and it just didn't make sense. The, Pac-12 championship game in football this year is a microcosm of how much the conference values football. They valued one three-and-a-half-hour game over the quote-unquote integrity, and I know that that's probably a laughable word because of how few games the conference played and how little it looked like they really wanted to play football this fall. But as soon as as – soon as, as Washington um, could not play in that Pac-12 championship game, it should not have gone to Oregon, and Oregon should not have been afforded an opportunity to beat USC. USC was undefeated. They should have just been given the conference championship, or they should have declared them co-champs, and USC would have gone to the Fiesta Bowl as the highest-ranked team in the conference. That's what all the other conferences had written into their to their league championships this year with COVID. But Larry Scott valued the money of that one tv window which was a friday night game um on fox more than he valued anything else and so for that they played a sham of a title game and got a sham of a champion and and the fact that most of the country didn't even care because at that point it was just so pac-12 that people were immune to it is everything you need to know about his time as pac-12 conference commissioner yeah i i mean i'm looking at the numbers from a couple of years ago, the um, Utah-Washington Pac-12 title, and it's rating a 2.6, right? Like, this is traditionally the lowest-rated conference championship game year in, year out, and there's a reason for that. It's A, when it's scheduled on a weekday night most of the time before all the other conference title games are played, and then B, the fact that just nobody really cares as much about the Pac-12 because it hasn't had any bearing on the college football playoff. And that's not directly Larry's fault, but I think he's put a lot of these programs behind the eight ball um, when chasing that goal. And, and you look at his tenure, the competitiveness level has dropped incrementally under his guidance. And it is time for the league to kind of look in a different direction um, and figure something out because they're starting to slide down. They're not to the point of being like an American yet. I don't think the American has passed them up in the major two sports in terms of relevance, but it's not, they may be closer to that than they are to the big time power four conferences, ACC, SEC, big 12, big 10. They, whatever they do, they need to find someone whose previous role was not 
would the best thing that you can say about them is that they negotiated a TV rights deal for the women for the Women's Tennis Association. And that's what Larry Scott's big selling point was when he came into the role. And he the 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 irony of him touting his media rights proficiency and then oh. completely botching the Pac-12 Networks deal uh, is is incredible. I just hope that whoever comes into the role is able to strike some kind of deal with ESPN or Fox to get the Pac-12 network. Well, yeah, or in CBS. Than, in more than 17, or CBS, in more than 17% of homes in the country. Yeah. Because that, yeah. the fact that four-fifths of the country doesn't get to see Pac-12 games and that I can easily watch the Big Ten or the SEC or the ACC with my YouTube TV subscription and I can't uh, watch the Pac-12 network, even as a student, don't get me started yeah. cutting. Don't get me started about yeah. cutting the ASU uh, student <laughs> subscriptions to to Pac-12 Network. Um, it's just better days are ahead. I would hope. Yeah, no, and there's a big opportunity coming into play here. Um, the SEC television rights going to ESPN, I believe, in 2026. Um, CBS is going to be looking for a new partner. One would think, um, according to some of the people I've talked to, they're going to look to stay in play in college football. ACC is taken. ESPN's already got the rights there. Big Ten's on Fox. They're happy there. Massively lucrative deal. And then the Big 12's in a situation where they're split, yes, between ESPN and Fox, but are doing pretty well. The natural partner would be the Pac-12 for CBS and I think it'll be a really big indicator of where the conference is at and where it might be going forward based on what CBS chooses to do, whether or not they choose to pay exponentially more to get the rights for the Big 12 because they think the product is going to be that much better or whether or not they decide to couple up with the Pac-12 here in a couple of years. I think will be very telling. We'll see, though. We'll have to wait it out. We'll see who they hire. One would hope it would be a television executive that could close that kind of deal. Or just someone who has – a background as an athletic director with some sort of basketball and football success, because that's yeah. what they're the PAC 12 is never going to struggle in the Olympic sports. There's too no. many resources put into them. You don't need to continue to do that. You need to figure out basketball and football and get nationally relevant, yeah. which has a massive trickle down to all the other sports. Um, and that can't be overstressed at all. Um, yeah. I just think it's hilarious that, the only league that's television network is owned by its schools. And one of the schools doesn't even want to pay to uh, have that available for their students. That is fairly remarkable. Let's move on from the PAC 12 to a conference that uh, I, I think is doing a little bit better. The conference where it just means more. And by that, I mean more threes hit by Alabama who still might be putting it in from deep as we speak right now. Broken SEC record against LSU. They won 12 games in a row, threatening to break their longest conference winning streak in the history of the school at eight to start conference play. They're atop the conference by two games, and they can't miss, apparently. So, Gabe, how good is Alabama? Okay, a lot of people are saying – or I think that the brand of Alabama football overshadows Alabama basketball, and so people believe, like, you know – you can't be great at both. Um, I think Florida has proven that to be wrong in years past, and I don't think that Alabama has necessarily hit its peak because Nate Oates is recruiting at a pretty decent level. But this Alabama team is not a fluke. 
they are, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overreacting to the 23 made three pointers, which broke their own sec record of 22 John Petty going seven of seven from three to start the game, which I've still never seen anyone go eight for eight to start, but I've seen a couple people go seven for seven. And it's one of the most incredible feats in college hoops. Um, 12 made three pointers in the first 13 minutes of Tuesday night's game. It was an absolutely wild show, but they rank 11th in Ken Palm, ninth in the Torvik rankings. They're a balanced team. The The defense is actually ranks higher than the offense nationally in terms of adjusted efficiency marks and, and such. And I looked it up because this stood out to me. Are they just hitting shots at an absurd rate or are they taking good shots and can the results be expected to go over? So one of the best follows on, on Twitter and on, on in college basketball is at shot underscore quality on Twitter. Um, love the account and found this. Um, even based on the shots that have been taken, Bama has been expected to win every single game they lost, even when they lost by 18 to Stanford. So when they lost uh, to Clemson, they lost by eight. They were supposed to win that game based on the shots taken. The formula is, is basically whatever the percentage of makes are of the shot someone takes if they're taking those it it's it's a it's a long story but it makes math. sense math is involved yes math is very much involved long story short they lost by eight to clemson they should have won that game by 15 according to the shots that they took and the shots that clemson took they lost by 18 to stanford they should have won that game by eight is what the shot quality says and they lost by two to a decent western kentucky team and it says that the shot quality should have been set they should have won by seven so it's not a matter of them just making an absurd amount of shots. They lead the country in rim and three percentage, which means 70 and, and it's 79% of the time. So 79% of their shots are either a three pointer or a shot at the rim, which is going to mm -hmm. bode well for a team that shoots yeah. the ball well from three. So, numerically, numerically. That's the yeah. thing. This is very analytically charged basketball. And I'm going to touch on that point. But before this, I was just looking around to see what the highest ranked Alabama's ever been. Again, have a guess. I'd What's say, the highest ranked Alabama's ever been? I'd say eight. Number one in 2002, 2003. You want to know what happened next? They lose like 10 straight. Close to it. They, they started 9-0. and They were ranked first. They lost to Utah. And then after that, they dropped six of eight. Fell out of the poll entirely. Pulled an ASU, um, if you remember the, the Trey Holder team. Uh, they closed the season with a first-round loss in the SEC tournament and a first-round loss in the NCAA tournament. So hopefully Alabama can do a little bit better than that. But I think that when we talk about shot quality and all the analytically charged stuff, it, it comes, we talk about this in football, too, with EPA a lot. Yes, those numbers are really insightful at a blanket level about what's mathematically sound. All that matters is what your team can and cannot do. Alabama, we saw against Stanford, and I'll admit the only non-conference game that I saw of theirs was the Stanford game in Maui. We saw them just miss a bunch of threes, which Nate Oates' strategy is we're going to be top 10 in pace every year. We're going to get up and down, and we're going to chuck threes. And if those don't go in, you're not going to do very well. They're going in now in an obscene rate, and I think Alabama is somewhere in between that. They're very hot right now, but John Petty's not going to start game seven for seven consistently. 
they've got really good players. Herb Jones, Quinterly, Josh Primo, who's mocked as a potential lottery pick. And they've got one of the best shooters, just out and out strokers of the basketball in John Petty in the nation. And I admit to all of that. What happens when Alabama has a half where they go two for 12 from deep and are down 10? Do they have what it takes to come back in a game? That's what I don't know yet. I think they're good. I think they're a top 25 team. They're dominating in the SEC. And it's not like they've beaten the bad teams of the SEC to get to this point. They've beaten everybody. They've beaten Arkansas. They've beaten LSU. And most importantly, they won on Rocky Top and beat Tennessee. And, oh, by the way, they also handed Calipari, what, his worst home loss at Kentucky in, in the process. So they're real in that sense. And yes, they are absolutely a tournament team. And because of this head start, because, and we'll talk about Tennessee here in a moment, the fact that Tennessee had an absolute dud in Gainesville and fell two behind in the SEC standings, Alabama looks good there. I still think Tennessee is probably the best team in the SEC, but Alabama has played like it in SEC play because they're making threes. I just don't know if they're going to keep doing that at this rate. I mean, they make a, a very good percentage, a quality percentage of threes. And the reason I'm not worried is it's not like an Iowa situation where they can score out of the gym. And Iowa is a historically historically good offense, actually. But the defense isn't on par. The The defensive numbers are just as, just as impressive. As yeah. It's not like yeah. there's some giant gap between – the, oh, they're a top five offense and they're a top 25-ish defense. They're a top, they're a top 12 offense or a top 12 defense and a top 15 offense. The defense is actually better than the offense. And I think that that's why that these numbers aren't necessarily flukes. And I think that they'll be able to continue them. Um, you mentioned Primo is a potential lottery pick. Uh, at least I saw him mocked as a first rounder next year. Um mm-hmm because he's only playing 19 minutes a game this year and, and such. Yeah. But between Petty and Herb Jones and Shackelford and Quinterly, there's just – there's a lot of depth. Um, I think a lot of guards. There's a lot of guards. Uh, and I think that this is very uh, – it bodes well for long-term that they have good young guards as well. And the recruiting is continuing, and they have a, a mm-hmm. five-star guard coming in next year as well. Uh, Davidson. One of the top five players in the country. Yeah, and and that bodes well. It's going to be can they get good forward play? Herb Jones is is probably I would say glue guy is an overshaded term because I think he's worth more than glue guy and his yeah, defense. He's our best defender. Yeah, his defense is what elevates this team. But there, I don't know if there's I don't know if they're going to face a team in the SEC that can just pound it inside on them. And for that, they'll probably be fine. But I'll be interested to see how they get how they go uh, in, in the NCAA tournament because I I understand the the whole shot quality thing and the argument that I just made. But part of the reason they lost to Stanford is a yes they went cold from three and then b Stanford had bigger guys into Silva and Zaire Williams who's a, obviously a guard but is a is a big guard and can kind of take advantage of scoring inside. So it's it's interesting. But I I think that this Nate Oates team is one of the most fun teams to watch in college basketball. And it's one that you have to keep your eye on the rest of the year because they're, they're not going to fade away. Yeah. I think even more so too, also. And like I said, we'll talk about Tennessee here in a moment, but the thing with 
Alabama is their defense is fed by the fact that they're just going to overwhelm you offensively. And then all of a sudden you're down 15 and you're forcing a lot of threes. And all of a sudden Alabama's defense looks a lot better. I, I, I am going to pose the question that's become a little bit of a cliche within college basketball circles. Is Alabama's basketball offense better than their football offense? No. No, just objectively. No. Can we get Devontae Smith out on the court and see what he can add? That's my question. Um, let's talk about Tennessee, though. You take the loss to uh, lose your undefeated record at home at Thompson Bowling against Alabama. That was about two weeks ago. Heading down to Gainesville, Florida is one of the most confounding teams in the nation. They've got really good wins. They've got really bad losses. Florida at 6-4 and four coming into that game kind of felt like it might be a must-win. There aren't a lot of opportunities to make really statement wins in the SEC this year. And they did it. They win by double figures. Tennessee gets absolutely blown out, absolutely rocked to compound a pretty rough couple days on Rocky Top. Between that and the uh, Happy Meal scandal of 2021, not going very well for the balls. What do you take away from that one? They just sometimes it's about making and missing shots. And Tennessee, it's not like Tennessee was getting bad looks. They just didn't, they didn't make shots. It's pretty simple. Um, they, Florida looked like a team that knew that this was kind of one of its last chances to really stay into the NCAA tournament conversation. And they did it. And I think that Tennessee's downfall, they take, they take good shots. They take shots that, um, translate to success and that's why it raises their floor I think that their ceiling is lowered by the fact that they are too reliant and you and I have both been on this train a little too reliant on Viscovi and Eves Pons is a great defender but sometimes they give him the ball a little too much and don't let Fulkerson get to work yeah um, I think more shots for Victor Bailey more shots for Keon Johnson and more shots for Fulkerson would bode well for this team and other than that, I, I I will go back to the shot quality. They are the best team in the country in terms of they take the smart they take smart shots and sometimes you just miss them and it gets ugly. But especially gets ugly on the road and and a lot has been made about fans and no fans and such. But like in hate to stereotype in the South there are fans and such. So sometimes you get down on the road and you just kind of crumple. Maybe that's not the best sign for. Uh, the ability to like fight through adversity in the tournament and such. But I think sometimes you just have ugly nights. Like this, this felt very Texas over Kansas, like where maybe the, the margin of talent isn't that great of a gap. And sometimes you just miss shots that you typically would make. And I think, I don't know. I haven't looked at the schedule to see if Florida goes back to Tennessee, but I would anticipate a, a rematch would be significantly closer, if not a guaranteed Tennessee win. Yeah, I, and I can see it. I, the thing that I would say is sustainable is Florida did a really good job of passing the ball around Tennessee's defense, getting them in scramble situations, making them try and run guys off the line in the corner, and then penetrating and get buckets um, in the lane. They did a fantastic job of, of that. They stayed out of foul trouble two, which kept Tennessee from getting the easy ones at the line. And all in all, I just think Florida was significantly better than Tennessee on that night. The thing with the balls is they've not figured out their hierarchy yet, and that's a little bit concerning because late in the game, the decision of who's going to take the shot I don't think is very clear right now. Um, 
who their primary scores are going to be on a night in night out basis is not very clear right now. And when it is clarified, I think it's kind of the wrong guys taking the shot. I need more out of Springer, need more Keon Johnson playing, need less Muscovy. I've been saying this. I firmly believe it. Um, Pons is a good offensive player. Maybe don't treat him like Grant Williams. Maybe treat him like a complimentary piece as a screener. Uh, he can shoot, so pick and pop is always an option, and it's a lob threat, but less so of a guy as you're working offense too intentionally. Yeah, Eves Pons should be shooting when he's it. He should not be shooting the contest, a couple contested mid-range floaters and such that he was doing at times. Um, but his defense obviously makes up for it, and that's why he has to play. But yeah, I, I think that if uh, if Tennessee finds an offensive brand, their defense is good enough. They are very elite. And I still believe in them. I don't, this doesn't, this is not a loss that like concerns me, honestly. Okay. So let's move on from the SEC. Let's talk some blue bloods. Um, Duke, it's not good. I, I said before this game that if they lost to Pitt, we don't know if Pitt's bad. We don't know if Pitt's good. I, I still don't know if we know that for sure. But if they lose the Pitt, it, it's panic time. And they probably would be out of the tournament if it started the day. They can still make a decent run in conference play. And I think if they go over 500 in the ACC off name brand alone, they're making the field. But what degree of confidence do you have that that even would happen for Mike Krzyzewski's team right now? I mean, they got an absolutely incredible performance from Jalen Johnson. They did. Uh, and I know that it was offset by Justin Champagny mm -hmm. going for 30, 10 and five, which only Ralph Sampson has done against a coach K Duke team. Uh, so quite the company for Champagny. I do want to, I, I have a thought on Champagny, but I'll save it for a little bit um, with Duke. It just, the fact that they have to go to a zone again, it's very 2018 Duke-esque. Yeah, I, I thought that exact same thing. And it, except for except for this team doesn't have Grayson Allen, and Jalen Johnson is good, but he's not Marcus Bagley. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's just not the same level of there's not a Gary Trent on this team. The it they have all of the 2018 team's problems defensively in terms of staying in front of your man and man to man and just. Coach K wanting to simplify the defense and and doing that and going to his own. And it actually, like, got the game from, I think it was 55-40, and it got it down to 58-52 or such. And, and then it got got a lot closer. Mm -hmm. The final nail in the coffin was just Johnson fouling out at the end. Um, and they didn't – they weren't ever really able to recover. I, I don't know if on the pit side of things <laughs> – Justin Champagny's good. I don't know if he can do that consistently. I mean, he has, though. The thing is, he has. And we'll talk about Justin Champagny, but yeah. But it's a bad sign that they got 24 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists, four blocks, and two steals from Jalen Johnson. Like, he did everything off the bench. And still, they couldn't, they couldn't win because they couldn't get – their defense isn't good enough. Yeah. I mean, I, you pretty much summed it up. Um Let's talk about Justin Champagny because I do think he, more so than even Duke losing this game, was a headline. I insinuated to you that I was just looking at the stats. I'm like, hey, this Justin Champagny guy, because I had watched a ton of pit basketball. 
he could win conference player of the year if he continues to put up these numbers. Then I like really gave him a look over. He's got to be one of the best rebounders pound for pound in the history of college basketball, because at six, six, he's now got what three or four games at this point where he's been up over 20 boards. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, he's, a, he's bouncy and I, I would. I was anti Duke's defense, and I think that their their defense is they're going to his zone and and that yeah, can clearly and all of that. I don't. I don't think that Shashevsky necessarily believes in his defense very much. Pitt's defense was really odd at the end of this game or late in the second half because there was multiple times where it felt like they were doubling guys in the post, uh, Johnson or Hurt, and just leaving like letting guys slide baseline and get wide open layups. And then Champagne would just come out of nowhere and block the shot. And so it was – sometimes it just seemed like he was erasing their mistakes um, and figuring things out for them when they weren't necessarily in, in great shape. But my thought is this, um, my Champagne thought. I laughed at you a couple weeks ago when you said he could win ACC Player of the Year. I was wrong, so I will admit that. Um, but Justin Champagne is from Brooklyn – he Obi? that's what i was gonna say <laughs> he's from it, it, bouncy forward second year guy he was good his freshman year and people maybe didn't necessarily completely notice um pitt's not on the level of dayton that dayton was last year but like i can see because he shoots the three well at the college level i don't know if he'll shoot the mm-hmm. three well at the nba level Did yeah you see that? I mean, he's a 32% college free throw sh- or three-point shooter. You look more so, though, as an indicator um, for what three-point success is going to look like at the NBA level. Uh, when you look at free throw percentage, that's a, usually a better indicator. Last year, he shot 77.7%, so that's really good. Um, 64.9% so far this year. So, I mean, I think he's a good NBA player that profiles as a potential lottery pick based on his skill set. Like you said, really bouncy. He, again, is an elite rebounder. He hunts the glass. Um, and at 6'6", 200, is able to do things that a lot of seven-footers can't do as a rim protector and rebounder in college basketball. So that's really impressive. I just wanted to look in and see what sample size was going to look like in terms of player of the years in the ACC defying the best player on the best team narrative. And it's happened. I mean, T.J. Warren won it on an NC State team that was middle of the pack, um, not necessarily contending for a conference title. Um, you look down the list, uh, and you also locate Eric Green from Virginia Tech um, in 2012-2013, who was an absolute bucket and scored like 25, 26 points per game, but on a Virginia Tech team that I believe finished last in the conference. Um, it's happened before. Pitt's going to be okay. I think for sure. I don't know if they're going to contend to win the league. It's kind of a maelstrom, so maybe they have a chance. But the fact that they have a player that you feel like you're going to gain something by watching their games is something that Pitt has not had since joining the ACC. So for them and for Coach Capel, that's a really awesome thing. And I think Justin Champagne would be my pick for Conference Player of the Year right now. I think he's in the dead heat of the National Player of the Year race potentially if he continues to play at this level miss a little bit of time with an injury 
back now, if he can stay healthy, I think he's got just as much a chance as anybody who's not Luka Garza or Corey Kispert. Yeah, he missed the time with the knee injury, but they the, the program was also shut down. Also true. So he didn't miss as many games as he necessarily would have. Um, and so I, I don't – I think that the National Player of the Year race is squarely Kispert versus Garza, and that's where we're at with that. But um, he definitely is worth watching, and he makes pit games actually watchable uh, aside from just, like, background TV noise. So, yes, I – I love Justin Champagne. Okay, so we've talked about everything now. I think that's in the headlines of college basketball. You came up with this idea earlier in the week. I've been excited to get to it. It is the conference championship weekend in the NFL. You wanted to compare the four remaining NFL teams to college basketball programs. I think that's a a terrific idea. So let's just jump into it with our Kansas City Chiefs. What team profiles as similarly to Patrick Mahomes' squad in college basketball as there is? Okay, so I don't know how you – because this is very subjective. So I don't know if you went this year comps. Do you want my this year comp or do you want my historical comp? Because I did both. I only did this year, but if you want to give both, I'm not going to stop you from doing extra credit. Okay. I think, I think we know what this year's comp is, right? Yeah, it's Gonzaga. Yes. Okay. I'm glad we could agree on that. Although um, I, I actually reserved Gonzaga for a different team. Well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a tease. Um, I mean, I feel like, the, the thing you've said about Gonzaga with them keeping teams in games with a little on-off switch, um, that's kind of what the Chiefs are. And there's been a lot of close games with garbage time touchdowns making it seem like there was a, it was really a one-score game and all that was necessary was Patrick Mahomes to pick up one first down on the next drive and it was over. Um, and that's what it feels like Gonzaga got up big on Kansas on the first day of the year, let them tie the game in the second half, ran away with it. Same thing kind of happened with West Virginia. Same thing happened with uh, their matchup with Iowa. We don't know if we'll see them play Baylor, if that'll get rescheduled, or if they'll play Tennessee like they tried, they wanted to reschedule. Um, they get down against St. Mary's this past weekend, and then they run it off. Um, that's my this year comparison is Gonzaga. My historical comp is Kansas because Kansas won 14 straight Big 12 titles, and Andy Reid has now won five straight AFC West titles. And there's also been some playoff blunders and struggles in years past. And I know that that was probably pre Mahomes and such, but that's where I'm at in terms of this year and historical for the chiefs. Okay. I like it. I'm going to go a different route because I've got Gonzaga with a different team and I didn't just want to say Gonzaga twice for different reasons. So I'm going to go with Alabama in the conference run because the offense is elite. And yes, we know this. But the defense is sneakily a little bit better than you would think, too, because of some key players like Tyron Matthew, Herb Jones. I can see it. So I went with Alabama so I could say Gonzaga is the Buffalo Bills. Elite offense, a little bit skeptical about the defense, but they're all right. More than anything, though, a team that has never been able to deliver on their promise get to the promised land and win a title. The Bills have not. Gonzaga has not. And it feels like if there was a year to do it for both of those teams, 
it would be this year. So that's why I did Gonzaga. Okay. See, and I understand Gonzaga hasn't gotten it done. The Bills have also never won a Super Bowl. So that makes sense. My comparisons, um, historically, just on a fan base level, I think the Bills are like Indiana. They're going to get a packed crowd. I know that there's there weren't crowds this year really, and they they got play they got they got sixty seven hundred or whatever it was for the Ravens game and for the Colts game in the first two rounds of the playoffs. Um, but I think that both fan bases are loyal. They'll pack the stadium regardless of what it is, and the league is probably better when they're good. Um, I get that Indiana has won national championships, but the Bills and the Bills have never won one. But the Indiana national titles have come a long time ago. Um, but if you want a team that's really good with a great offense, um, that defense can kind of get exposed at times, I would say Iowa for this year because uh, the Bills defense has held the Ravens and Colts to two points per red zone trip in the eight trips that, to the red zone that they've had so far this year. And I think that that's something that can get exposed this weekend. If you give Mahomes four or five trips to the red zone, I don't think you're coming away with two points per trip um, and getting a 102-yard pick six like they got off of Lamar Jackson and such. So I think that they're Iowa in that sense. Um, and that makes even more sense because Iowa has has had years where people are watching them and they're interesting and um, you always have your eye on them, but they've never really been a – national contender slash Super Bowl contender, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's not horrible. I, I was looking for an Iowa comp. I couldn't really find one. But if there was one, I think it is definitely Buffalo. Let's move to the NFC. I've got a really good one for Tampa, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay. I'd, I struggled with Tampa Bay, and I struggled with the Packers. I guess my Kansas City nature had me a little more clear-minded on the AFC. Um, the Bucks. I'm going to say Baylor because they have the talent that it makes perfect sense. If either of these two teams win, they're lost. Their rosters are loaded, but Bruce Arians, Scott drew. It's like, how good of a coach actually are they? And if at the end of the day, if, if Scott drew is cutting down the nets or if Bruce Arians is lifting the Lombardi trophy, I had to take Tom Brady out of the comparison because there's nothing like Brady in college basketball in terms of a player, because obviously you don't get guys sticking around for 20 years and such. So I had to take Brady out of the equation and just go by talent. But if Bruce Arians is kissing the Lombardi trophy on February 7th, it would just be a little odd. Uh, see, here's where you went wrong. You forgot that it was a prerequisite to be 33 years old to play for Wisconsin in great guard. So that's my comp because all of the Bucks' best players are really old when you look at Antonio Brown, um, even guys like Levante David, um, and obviously Tom Brady. Good defense, maybe at times carries the offense, but the offense sometimes randomly just explodes. So I went with Wisconsin there, and given how much I outwardly despise Wisconsin, although they've earned my respect – that's kind of how I feel the exact same way about the Buccaneers, where I think they're kind of fake, but they want enough for me to respect them just a little bit. The other team, like my historical comparison, um, based on the way that this program like typically works, and then what we've seen from the Bucs this year, is Michigan State, because 
they were they struggled a couple times early in the season. Um, they're they, pulling an Izzo. Yeah, and it felt like they were pulling an Izzo because you you knew that they would probably get better as the year went on, and and with COVID and not being able to get the full off-season install in, it felt like the Buccaneers were just kind of buying time and figuring things out. And then they added Antonio Brown and all of those types of things. Um, just felt like peaking at the right time. And I don't know if they're necessarily peaking. I think that they kind of just took advantage of a football team that literally a football team in, in Washington that was playing its backup quarterback and didn't yeah. was one of the worst division winners ever. And then an old and injured Drew Brees, but yeah, that would be my comp. No, Drew Brees is old enough to be a redshirt freshman at Wisconsin. <laughs> Very good point. Um, no, yeah, I, I think they've kind of waltzed through this. They've had a really favorable set of matchups given everything that you just noted with Drew Brees. Um, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see him play in Tampa and Lambeau, uh, how a team that plays in customarily and practices in 70 and sunny plays on the tundra. I don't know. We'll see. Green Bay is a team that we, at least I, struggled with the most to identify because my first thought was Baylor, but no, their defense isn't elite like that. And there just really is no guy that I could directly comp to being a Rodgers type that is the soul of a team because really you're looking for a team that is a decent defensive team that's offense is like two guys because that would be Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers. And I guess to a lesser extent, like a third Aaron Jones type. I kind of came up with Villanova because that's kind of how their hierarchy is structured a little bit, but we just honestly haven't seen Villanova play much. So it's a little bit of a cop out. I'm not going to lie. I don't see the Villanova comp because I think that you have to go to the head coaches. The head coaches matter a lot in my comparisons. And so second year head coach, Matt LaFleur, do you want to guess which way I would go with a second year head coach and kind of a three headed offensive slash best players attack? My first guess was Texas tech, but beer is not in his third year. And I'm trying to think about second year head coaches. I mean, you're not going to say Alabama, are you? No, it is. Okay. My comparison is going to be Michigan. Okay. Juan Howard, second year coach doing, uh, had a decent team his first year. I think they were third. The, the Packers were thirteen and three last year, but people didn't really think that they were that elite. Yeah, the scheduling um, thing. Yeah, it was a scheduling thing, and the the DVOA and all of that has improved a lot this year. I think Michigan has gotten a lot better this year as well. And if you're going to go Rodgers, Jones, Adams as like a three headed monster, I'd say Dickinson, Livers, and Wagner. I don't know if they're on the same same quite level. Like no, they're not. Quite they're not. Level. But there's the comparison, and, and, and that's the way we're going to go with that. Okay, fair enough. And then you've got, like, the other little role players that make up the unsung part of the Packers, like great offense, which is their offensive line. Yeah. I get it. It makes sense. They wear yellow. They're close geographically. Yeah. Rashawn Gary. Yeah, it makes sense. I like it. Um, okay, so now that we've got that covered, we've got a little bit of time here. Last 10 minutes of the show today. I posted my Empire rankings. Didn't quite get the same kind of pushback that uh, we may have seen in this turf war that we've got going on between us and the Alco. But you've got your critiques, and I want to hear them. So shoot. I think at this point, I think that 
Iowa's sustained success and the fact that they haven't lost yet or haven't haven't really had a blemish in Big Ten play uh, to the same level other than obviously the collapse at the barn, which we don't count. Teams losing at the barn clearly doesn't count at this point. Um, I kind of think you have to put Garza one at this point until until Kispert does something absurd. But maybe, maybe you just say Corey Kispert's best is not going to be needed. That that would feel a little Mahomes-like in terms of the MVP conversation, where it felt like maybe his best wasn't needed at all times, mm-hmm. or defenses were doing other things and they were just letting other people uh, dominate in terms to keep the NFL comparison going. So I think I would honestly, I know I've been a pretty anti-Iowa guy. I think I would put Garza over Kispert. I have no problem with Jared Butler at three because 30 points against Kansas. That's now he's the only two players I've ever put up 30 in two games against Kansas. And it's Jared Butler and Kevin Durant uh, in big 12 play. So that's a kind of incredible. And then four, I've just understood that you are now rotating that as like the ice cream flavor of the month, uh, yeah. or the flavor of the week and champagne at four makes perfect sense because he did something that only him and Ralph Sampson have done. So whenever you, whenever your name is, it's you and Ralph Sampson, or it's you and Kevin Durant. I have no problem with Jared Butler and Justin Champagne. Being there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get that. And I think the big sticking point is going to be the fact that I continually put Garza at two and Kispert at one. My point is that Garza, as good as the stats have been, a lot of Iowa's conference success we can look back on now and say that was kind of inflated as we can with most of the Big Ten results at the end of the year. Um, Okay, so they beat Purdue. Yippee. Cool. Um, They do it at home. They lose at Minnesota, like you said, right off. It's at Minnesota. Nobody wins at the barn. It's just a fact. Beat, they beat Northwestern. Northwestern isn't good. We knew this. Cool. You move on into January. You beat a Rutgers team by two that's on a massive backslide and it's going to be fighting to get back into the tournament field at this trajectory. You beat Maryland. All right. Beat Minnesota at home whatever, it's Minnesota, and they're not playing at the barn, where they are 0-4 on the road, Minnesota is. Cool. You didn't play Michigan State, and you beat Northwestern again. When they play Illinois, when they play Michigan, when they play even teams like Ohio State and Wisconsin, I think I'm going to get a more clear read on whether or not I was right to keep him at two. Um, if Iowa wins the majority of those games that I just brought up, I think there's no way I can debate it, right? His stats are too good, and the team success is going to be there. Um, yeah, that's just kind of my stance. I think everything about the Big Ten is inflated, and I think he's kind of inflated. I, I agree with that, and we can get to scholarships and sanctions t- soon, but I find it hard to believe that two straight years uh, he's going to get beat out by, and I think that Obi should have won last year. Yeah. But and I and I know that Gonzaga is not typically is not a mid major and shouldn't be treated as such. But I don't think that in two consecutive years, when Garza is putting up historic numbers against Big Ten competition, which even if you think is not the same or isn't, even if we're on the page of the Big Twelve is a better conference, I don't think that he can get beat out by a guy who played in the A ten and then the guy that played in the WCC for two straight years. It's just it's whether 
if you want to say that Kispert would be your national champion and it's your ballot and not a prediction, because what's going to happen is guards is going to win this thing. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the, when Billis made the comment that Jared, like when Jared Butler was doing what he was doing against Kansas and then Shulman's like, this is a national player of the year caliber performance. And it's like, yeah, he could be there clapping for Luca Garza. And it's like, okay, this might already be over already, but I'm going to stick to my guns for as long as I can. That's fair. They are my rankings and I'm going to do what I want with them. James Booknight out number one next week, you know, him not playing and he's just, sphere of influence on UConn winning the majority of their games is enough for me to justify it. Okay. It's just positive vibes. The best positive vibe giver in college basketball, James Booknight. Um, no. So, okay. You're in agreement though, that the top four is correct. Maybe just not the order. Is there anybody else outside the top four that you've got an eye on? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, Nobody in the Pac-12 really stands out. Maybe McKinley Wright, but then they lost to Washington. Yeah, so that's probably done for. Marcus Carr is not good on the road, or his team is not very good on the road, so he's probably out. I think the I think the three is the three at the top are pretty solid, and then four is just going to be a rotating rotating cast. And I will say, I think Cade Cunningham. It was hard to drop him off the list just for not playing, but. They have Baylor this weekend. That's a potential big moment for him, a potential huge moment for Jared Butler to kind of move himself from group two into that true contenders group um, because he's been a little bit spotty. He only had, the other thing is he only had seven points in Lubbock, so maybe that should have counted against him a little bit more. But they won, so it didn't matter. And that's Baylor. They're just so balanced that it's not going to be a problem most nights if Jared Butler doesn't get 30. But when he does, they look pretty unbeatable. Let's do scholarships and sanctions to close this thing out. I'll start with you. Where do you want to begin? I'm going to sanction the NCAA. I understand that it had to be done. I understand that they had to account for more time for COVID testing and clearing and everything for, for March Madness. But the tournament tipping off with a first four game on a Thursday, first round beginning on Friday the 19th, and then second round games being played Sunday and Monday, and then you come back the next weekend – and the Sweet 16 is Saturday, Sunday. Elite Eight is Monday, Tuesday. And then we get a Tuesday to Saturday turnaround for the Final Four. It's just less than ideal. I think that that Thursday and Friday, two days of, what would it be, 16 games each? Yeah. Um, are the two, like, two of the best days in sports. And that specifically that Thursday, because it's the first yeah. one. And it's, it's almost like it's better when you know that there's still more to go. So just – it's going to take me a little bit of time to grapple with the process and the, the thought of uh, the NCAA tournament not being the same setup scheduling wise and viewing, viewing habit wise, but you know, I'll recover. Okay. I'm going to give a scholarship to us for being right about Northwestern, not being good because when they won the first three games in the big 10 play, you and I were like, what, why, why are they winning? This doesn't make sense because we would watch the games and it's like, what are they actually good at? And it turned out they weren't all that good. I'm going to count it up here, but here are their, their last couple of results. So they lost by 15 to Iowa after that three-game winning streak. Then they lost by 19 to Michigan, had a second half in which they made two shots against Illinois and lost 81 to 56. Ten-point loss to Ohio State another 23-point loss to Iowa, 
And then last night against Wisconsin, they lost by 16. After the 3-0 start, they've not come within double digits of winning a game. I mean, I want to point out that you said that you thought that they were very close to becoming almost a tournament lock, and I talked you off that ledge, so. I said they had done enough if they, like, won two more games against good teams and then were able to just beat the dregs of the Big Ten. They'd be set, but, like, the nature of these losses is going to make it impossible. Yeah, they're, they're not recovering from this. For everybody who told me, ah, ha, ha, you were wrong about Northwestern. They actually are really good. I'm like, I just don't see it. Take this because they're awful. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a scholarship to McDonald's. Oh, my God. <laughs> so McDonald's is giving out scholarships is what you mean to say. Yeah, yeah. No, because they don't need it. But I think the, the McDonald's orders are going up in the Knoxville area. People just hoping that – a little bit of cash gets dropped into their the big so Literally securing the bag uh, for the McDonald's drive-thru. I like that. I'm also going to give a, a sanction to the University of Tennessee because it was reported this week that they might be interested in talking to Jason Witten about their head coaching position. Why? For what reason? Other than he graduated from the university. What are you guys doing over there? Okay, that's all I got on that. I don't the, – the last the last thing that I have before we go, we got a minute left in this uh, – in our time slot. Scholarship for amateurism because Zion Williamson got a judge to rule that he was still an amateur athlete, and they, they got his, his agreement with Gina Ford avoided. Uh, his attorney called it a good day for truth and justice. And I think that – I think that Wednesday was a good day for truth and justice. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Not for Tennessee fans. Okay, that's Heat Check. We'll catch you next week, Thursday. For Gabe Schwartz, I'm Peyton Gallagher. Bye-bye, everybody. Sunday or Monday, you know that we flex. True. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. Get to the top of the top of this. You can never reach uh, these hoes. in the booth and we spin the truth. Aye. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. You. Ooh, flow so high, so you know Aye. I had to run it back. Blazes apart and we run it like a running back. Gabe, our chalk, so you know Aye. we have a fun with that. Turn you in the off, so you know Aye. we ain't no coming back. Now we done with that. <laughs>